Hi, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, published by Harvard Business Review Press. And this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. Each week, I ask my guests what they do differently that sets them apart in the workplace, what makes them tick, and what makes them so successful. In this episode, I talk with my old partner in crime from Wiley, Joan Capua. We talked about building a reputation for service and about the human elements of sales and how that can be applied to almost anything you do. I'm Bruce Tolgan. Welcome to The Indispensables. I am so pleased to have my old friend Joan Capua here. Uh, Joan has over 20 years experience in sales and negotiation, human resources, talent management, leadership development with leading financial, advertising, and publishing organizations. Uh, in response to recent global events, her focus has been on the themes of unconscious bias, diversity and inclusion, and remote working and management. Joan has contributed to the Wall Street Journal on the topic of communications, as well as several publications and books on sales and negotiations. In her free time, Joan conducts career readiness boot camps at her alma mater and is a group fitness instructor. She's right there in New York City. Joan, welcome to The Indispensables. Bruce, thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Uh, well, uh, I'm so glad to have you, and I will have you know that uh, uh, my my nana, my mother's mother, went to Adelphi University, so uh, uh, I love having that in common with you. Fantastic. I didn't know that. Yeah, isn't that cool? Uh, so uh, uh, we, we love Adelphi. Um, so um, let me ask you, let me just start. Um, what's your basic story? How did you get to where you are now? Yeah. You know, Bruce, I always had a love of learning, books, knowledge, uh, probably instilled in me by my dad, who used to take me on weekly library trips. We'd come home armed with all kinds of books on all different topics. And it was kind of like every book I opened was like stepping into another world, someone else's world. And so school became another opportunity to step into these other environments, perspectives, and other individuals' lives. And I was like, wow, I'd like to share that. And how can I best do that? I want to be a teacher. So that kind of led to my love of learning and sharing the learning. So I said, I want to do this. And there were some amazing teachers that I idolized who shaped what I became as a teacher. But along the path, Bruce, I did have one huge obstacle. I had a stuttering disorder. Nobody would, nobody would ever guess that you're, you're, you're an accomplished public speaker. Oh, well, thank you, Bruce. Yeah, it's, I take such joy in appreciating it now because I craved it when I was younger because I wasn't able to speak out because of the disorder. So I guess I really prized speaking uh, from an early age when I overcame that. Yeah, how, how did that go? Uh, uh, did you have like speech therapy or did you just tackle it yourself? Absolutely. First of all, I was lucky to have the love of my parents who supported me and said, hey, Joni, this is not permanent. We're going to get you through your dream to be a teacher. So we're going to have a talk with your teachers and say if maybe they could ease off on calling on you until you raised your hand. And we're going to get you the best speech therapist we could ever find. And I got this great speech therapist who felt that I was being maybe over perfectionism. Uh, and she said, you know what, that might be what's causing your disorder. So slow down, take it easy, accept yourself, have confidence in what you're going to say. And gradually, 
took a few years to get over it. And uh, is the memory still uh, in there? And, and do you think about it? Or, or is it just uh, now sort of in the rearview mirror? It's really in the rearview mirror, Bruce. I don't have any flashbacks or any clear uh, recollection. And I mean, because you're, you're so, um, I mean, what you do is communicate, right? I mean, for one thing, you had a career in sales and uh, uh, I'm guessing you sold the zillions of stuff. And uh, <laughs> I did. I, did. I, I really enjoyed sales. And I think it's all about active listening and connecting with the customer, you know, pretty much Bruce, like your tune in tool that you talk about? Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's funny because I think people who haven't had sales experience don't realize how much you can learn uh, about human interaction uh, and, and relationships and uh, communication, persuasion, decision-making. Uh, I think sales is a tremendous laboratory for learning. You know, Bruce, it brought up some points when you said to me, you know, how do you think about your working relationships? And I was like, oh my God, how I feel, Bruce, is that my experience in sales, you never get out of that headset. And it's always about every internal client that I have, every manager, every leader, every direct report, staff member that comes to me. I see them all as clients and they'll always be my customers. So I approach them in the same way I did in my sales mindset. So in other words, if you think of somebody as a client, as a customer, it's all about, hey, what can I do for you that's valuable? What value can I add? How can I build a relationship of trust so we can partner together? All about that. Yeah, how can I understand what you need? Uh, how can I understand where your needs intersect with what I bring to the table? Exactly. You know what else, Bruce? On the sales mentality, and also this ties in with learning and development as well, sometimes people think they know what they need, but it's first spoken as what they want. And I think it's your job, whether it's sales mindset or L&D mindset, to try to distill for them what is it actually that they need so that it aligns with actually what they spoke out as what they want. Preparing for this conversation was making me think about the relationship between sales and service. And, you know, some people think of the service mindset as this completely selfless, um, do-gooder thing. And sales, you know, has this reputation as being commercial and it's about trying to get my hands on your money. Uh, but what I find so interesting is how much, if you're really good at selling, uh, what you're really trying to do is help people figure out how to meet their wants and needs. And of course, you're trying to get them to meet their wants and needs with what you're selling. But, uh, but it's, 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 it's not so far away as, as people think. And um, uh, I think sometimes uh, uh, people underestimate how much one can learn from sales and how much one can serve when one is in sales. Exactly. You know, Bruce, I think we all know the stereotype of that schmoozy salesperson who may not be, you know, extremely truthful, but really want to get out there. And as you said, sell something and grab your money. But I think I built my reputation of success in sales by telling people, hey, I think this is what you need. Actually, my competitor has it. I have to be truthful. And it is a small world. And a lot of these customers came back around later in my L&D life, my advertising life. It is truly uh, something to, to think about. And also, people used to say, well, Joan, you really do a lot of listening on those sales calls, a lot of nodding and a lot of that. And I said, yeah, 
that's how you close because you want to know what the person needs. It's not about talking and schmoozing and presenting. Yeah, I th boy, I think you're so right. And uh, and you say um, uh, that sometimes you say, hey, look, one of my competitors has that and that's better for you. Um, and, and sometimes people would think, well, what are you doing? You're giving away the sale, but you're playing the long game of reputation and you're doing the right thing. Exactly. And you're playing the long game of trust. You don't know where that person could come back to you and say, you know what? Our needs have changed, Joan. Can we revisit the products that you offered? Yeah. And when you're, not, when you're somebody who's always trying to do the right thing for the right reasons, uh, uh, ultimately, that's what you become known for. That's what people remember. That that becomes your reputation. That's who you are in their head. Um, and, um, you know, in many ways, that's a good way to, to summarize what I'm always trying to get across by uh, the concept with the concept of, of real influence. Um, you know, when, when people have a high opinion of you, then you have real influence. Um, so let me ask you, uh, uh, how much is mission what drives you in your work? I mean, when you're selling, uh, of course, uh, a lot of people don't realize how mission-driven sales can be, but certainly as a teacher in learning and development, uh, uh, how much would you say mission is what drives you in your work? Yeah, I would say that, uh, and Bruce, in, in reading your most recent book, talking about influence and mission and seeing how people contribute to the larger organizational priorities, I think that really woke me up to say, hey, this is my mission. How does it bubble up into the larger organization? So that really steers me. But I'd say that no matter where people are in their self-development journey, I just help them get in touch with their goals and help them see how they contribute to these larger organizational priorities. Hopefully, I awaken their curiosity and motivation to learn. And that really drives me in every aspect of my work. I try to find commonalities with them and sometimes connect them with wider groups. And again, using the influence skills that you outline trying to get everyone on the same page and connected, kind of networking, especially now important in the virtual world because we're doing it in different ways. There's something about the way you communicate. Uh, I think that's inspirational. Uh, do you, how do you inspire another person? You know, I, I'm fond of saying it's nobody's job to light the fire in your belly. You have to do that for yourself. But some people are good at that, uh, lighting the fire in someone else's belly. You know what, Bruce? I, I am more in line with what you said, that that has to come from within someone, that it's very hard to push someone and light that fire in the belly if they don't have it, if maybe their focus is set on a different skill set, if they maybe don't align with the organization or frequently with reorgs and changes and new missions and visions, maybe they no longer align with that and it may be hard for them to get behind it but certainly I can help people that already have that fire to stoke it even further. And I've heard you say um, that, uh, that you, you uh, are driven by the adage, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are, which um, uh, I have seen attributed to many a philosopher, but it's a, it's a darn good one, which is, you know, we've all got our lens. So when you're doing one-on-one -on -one coaching, right, if somebody's listening here and saying, well, gee, uh, it sounds like uh, uh, Joan would be really good at one-on-one -on -one coaching, and I know that's one of the things you do. Um, so how do you help somebody adjust their lens? Yeah, 
well, that is, that's a big challenge that I face in one-on-one coaching. And it is very much helping them see again, where they, where they contribute to the larger organizational priorities. What's their personal vision? What's their mission? What do they want out of their life, out of their personal life, out of their professional life? What are their development goals? I try to really ask a lot of questions up front. And of course, using the tune-in tool, who is this person in front of me? What does their lens look like? How does it differ from mine? And Bruce, I think someday you and I are going to find out who was the original person that said, we don't see things as they are, we see things as we are. That's been attributed, as you said, to a lot of people. Here I am. I'm going to be attributing it to you. I used to say uh, uh, um, uh, luck is when uh, preparation meets opportunity. And I used to uh, cite Oprah Winfrey and, and a philosophy professor of mine in college said, uh, actually, I think that's Santayana. <laughs> I'm like, oh, whoops. Yeah. <laughs> not Oprah. Not that's Oprah. Right. That wasn't I Oprah. Okay. Oprah has uh, taken a lot of credit for a lot of expressions. Uh, well, she's a sharp cookie. No question about it. And uh, I don't think she claimed ownership of it. I was just citing her. You know? <laughs> exactly right. She was picking it up from someone else and saying, hey, I like it. I'm behind it. Right. What makes somebody influential for you? Uh, somebody, you know, I often think like the people is somebody you would hate to disappoint. Uh, you know, that's an, that's a sign of real influence that, you know, if, if your influence lives in my brain, I hate to disappoint you. What, what, what is that? What, what makes somebody influential in your mind? Yeah. You know, I think I'd be very hesitant to disappoint someone who is a continuous learner, a person who is respectful a person who stays positive with disruption and challenges and obstacles, and I guess a person that would never diminish anyone or tolerate anyone else diminishing someone. Someone who has the willingness to be candid and present even a radical opposing view in a calm and logical manner. Maybe someone who has a really positive and informed outlook who doesn't remind you, hey, I'm of a much higher rank than you are, so that you're, you're describing um, uh, conduct that's respectful of others, uh, that's, that's uh, cautious um, and respectful and also uh, diligent and, um, and deep. And I mean, how much is it like somebody who's really knowledgeable and how much of it is somebody who's really trying hard to be knowledgeable? How much of it is somebody who, you know, lifts other people up? And how much of it is somebody who at least their intention is to lift somebody up? Do you know what I mean? Like how much of it is what people get done and how much of it is intention? Good question. Because having a lot of knowledge is great if you use it the right way. Should we look at, to your point, the person who's trying to gain knowledge and lift others up with it? I'd have to vote for the latter, Bruce, the person who is trying to gain that knowledge and lift others up with it. So intention matters so much. Of course, uh, uh, we know uh, that good intentions are not enough, um, but, I, but I, I, I tend to, to look inside at motivation. Um, and then uh, one of the things I've learned over the years is, you know, when somebody does take action that has a negative effect, uh, and then it's brought to their attention. You, you you can learn so much about a person from how they respond to that kind of feedback. Absolutely. And the key is when you give this person feedback, 
you know, you talked before about that fire inside someone, you know, to be motivated. This person has to have a fire inside to be receptive to that feedback. You know, because all the way back when we were doing the it's okay to be the boss and we led boot camps based on that, a lot of really uh, senior managers, and I'll use that term senior meaning with a lot of longevity, were like, hey, Joan, I, I can't get behind it's okay to be the boss. I've been managing 20 years. Yes, but the last time you had a good one-on-one structured, consistent conversation was maybe 15 years ago. So we had to really overcome so many managers' denial that, hey, I don't need these principles. I've been doing this 20 years. It's the same in sales, Bruce. The most resistant people to sales training are the ones that need to increase those numbers. So, yeah, well, it's like when, you know, you, you go to give somebody feedback and they're like, feedback, none for me, thanks. You know, <laughs> you know, I'm all right. Hey, we got to do better. No, no, I'm fine as I am. Uh, okay, that's right. You know, hey, you have, you have power in relation to someone else's career and livelihood. That person goes home after work. And t- I, this is when we used to go to work, right? Uh, that person has dinner with their family and they talk about their boss. They're talking about you. Like, that's a pretty big responsibility. Are you sure you want to just go with your own style? <laughs> you, know? you know, Bruce, you've, you've said this many times before. Being a manager is a gift and a responsibility. You know, and you have to own up to that. And if you're not going to accept feedback, you know, there is a problem in your development because you you just talked about it. Intention. If your intention is good in developing people, you'll want to hear feedback about how can I get better. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, look, some people just want the business card, but they don't want the responsibility. Exactly. When you think about your career path and, um, and, and your uh, role models and uh, people you seek to emulate, I know you've mentioned Viktor Frankl, which is, wow, that's, that's, a, uh, that's a pretty high-minded uh, uh, reference point um, and, a, and a great one. Um, and can you, uh, I love that you cite Viktor Frankl, but maybe not all the listeners will know about Victor Frankl. Uh, I love, I, I wanted to pluck that one out because I wanted to ask you to, to say, explain who Victor Frankl is and why you uh, uh, have so much admiration for Victor Frankl. Certainly. He is an author and an amazing man who survived unspeakable horrors in the Holocaust. And he always said, if you have a reason to live, that will make your life better, no matter what's going on. I believe he also, Bruce, was the one that said when he was caught praying in one of the Holocaust camps and someone said to him, why are you praying? Look at what God did to us. And he said, I'm praying to give thanks to God that we are who we are and we are not Nazis. Yeah, that is that is so powerful. That is so powerful. That struck me. And I've had a lot of times in my life, Bruce, where I've had a lot of challenges, a lot of tragedies, a lot of loved ones that I lost. And I turned to Viktor Frankl for that kind of inspiration because I thought if he can do it, I can do it. You cite Frankl as um, as a, a model, a role model uh, for resilience, which um, uh, that's why I'm zeroing in on this one, because I think resilience is so important. 
Um, you know, uh, there's all this research about um, whether we can teach character. Uh, and it's particularly, uh, can we teach character to young people? It's a conversation I've had with some of the prior guests on the podcast, uh, General Langell and uh, uh, General Reimer, because I think the military um, has such a great approach. Of course, they get people very young, uh, but, but can you teach character? And uh, sometimes people think of uh, character as just being about integrity, uh, but uh, there are other aspects that are really character traits, curiosity. Can you teach curiosity? But resilience, I think, is really one of them. And I think the data shows that resilience, the ability to bounce back, the ability to keep going, um, is one of the most valuable traits. It's one of the differentiators between uh, people who succeed and people who don't, uh, between people who have a happy life and people who don't. And the Viktor Frankl example is so powerful because here he is in a Nazi concentration camp. And the reason he's praying, uh, and Jews don't really pray for an outcome. Jews typically pray in worship and in thanks. Um, and he's praying in thanks to God for being who we are and not for, and, and for not being a Nazi. I mean, that's just so powerful. Yeah, and I did hear your podcast with your military people, which were very inspirational. As you said, that's what they drill on, character, resilience. And yes, they do get them young, so they get those role models. But if you don't have that military background, maybe we can get it from examples of our parents, maybe relatives, maybe friends who may exhibit resilience and character. And we may want to model that. Yeah. And I think, you know, role models, look, uh, uh, Kurt Vonnegut's birthday was just the other day. <laughs> One of my favorite uh, quotes from Kurt Vonnegut is when we read the writings of a great writer, we're having the opportunity to think the thoughts of a great mind. And, um, and, and that's such a beautiful way to describe reading. Um, but, but you, I love, uh, you, the role models you cite and, and Stephen Covey's another one. And I was a huge, um, uh, admirer of professor Covey and he was very, very kind, uh, and supportive to me in when I started out in the mid nineties, early nineties. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. And he, uh, you know, he, he was kind enough to feature me in his, he had this, um, magazine, um, called excellence or I forget actually what it was called but in any case um, and and I wrote for it and, you know but in any case you know Stephen Covey is another one who what I love about him and his writing and I love that you cite Covey because uh, because he had this monumental bestseller uh, maybe people don't realize just how deep and profound his lessons are yeah and you know that basic that he says you know and you talk about prioritization in your books a great deal, but when he opened up, there was one uh, video or, or lecture he did, and he said, okay, prioritization, the main thing is to keep the main thing the main thing. <laughs> and he just left us with that. And we were like, what? And when you boil it down and really think about it, right, that's exactly what it's all about. Yeah, and Covey is, uh, I love Covey's approach to priorities. Um, you know, first things first, start with the end in mind. Uh, and, and I love um, his 
quadrants and his emphasis on quadrant two that you, you um, I don't know if you remember, but I, I often will, I teach quadrant two uh, or I cite quadrant two, um, the things that are very, very important, but not urgent. Uh, uh, and I often use uh, Smokey the Bear, uh, the famous uh, talking bear, who's a park ranger, very famous in America, but uh, not known throughout the world. Um, and his, uh, it's a whole lot easier to prevent a fire than it is to put one out as the, my, my, my metaphor for quadrant two, <laughs> but. I love that. Bruce, uh, you know, you said it so simply and that's really what it's all about. And you, you do talk about quadrant two being the, the whole focus and where we, we strive to spend the most time. And you also talk about the quadrants. The funny thing you mentioned, the military, I was leading my first time, we won't call it time management, that's an old term. It's sort of priority management because it's not about a to-do list. It's about, should that be on your list? You know, first knock it off. Exactly. And and in terms of priorities, like, you know, uh, gee, if you could do everything, you know, just be a matter of what order you do them in. But the real thing about priorities is some of that stuff might not get done. Exactly. Or, or shouldn't be done, shouldn't even be looked at. But the funny thing is here I am leading my first seminar and I'm, I'm quoting the Covey Quadrants and some chap from Australia gets up and says, Joan, can I correct you, please? I said, yes, you can. He said the quadrants that you're describing as originating with Stephen Covey actually are from your former president, Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's, it's actually a military model. That's exactly right. Exactly. And I know that you knew that. I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah, no, that's thank you for thank you for clarifying that, because I always cite Covey um, because I do think he popularized it. Uh, but but that is a military model of priority management. And and to your point of something shouldn't be done. Quadrant four is things that are neither urgent nor important. Stop doing that stuff. You know, it takes a while, but you just have to get out of habits as well. You know, we we are programmed. When something seems urgent or you get that ping, you get that email, you get that urgent phone call. Yeah, our temptation is, of course, got to respond, got to do something for this person. Yes. But, you know, I think maybe the first time you can push back a little bit and say, you know, Mary, I would like to talk to you about your request, but here's what's happening with my life here. I'm on deadline this week for this project or that project. Can we talk next week or maybe next month or can I have John talk to you? You know, something where you push back a little bit. You're not saying no, but you are saying maybe not now, or here's an alternative resource for you. Yeah, I, uh, you know, quadrant three, what, things that are urgent but not necessarily important, I think is the, it's the trap, right? So uh, quadrant three, it's urgent, but it, the only thing that's making it urgent is someone is, presenting it to you in proximity of time. It's urgent only because it's they're bringing it up right now and they're seeking a resolution right now. Uh, but it might not be so important. Of course, it's important to them. Uh, and I, but I think people get pulled into quadrant three uh, too easily. I think, and I think, you know, but I think the, the advice of eliminate quadrant four things that are not urgent or important unless, and you say, oh, well, but no, this is my relaxation time. Oh, well, that's very important. <laughs> you know, so, so that's not a quadrant four thing. Quadrant four is stuff that's just a waste of time. And sometimes it even can be called a burnout quadrant. 
Bruce, to your point, you just said it's not about relaxing. It's about wasteful burnout stuff. If it's relaxing, that's your quadrant two. Regenerating, yeah, regenerating, or uh, and and uh, sharpening the saw and um, whatever you you know. I often say um, you know, exercise is quadrant two, a heart attack is quadrant one, fire prevention is quadrant two, a fire is quadrant one, working on your relationships is quadrant two, uh, a divorce is quadrant one, um, and you know. But when quadrant one is going down, the reason it's quadrant one is because you know the building's on fire. You got to take action. Um, so you can't you can't ignore quadrant one. Those things have to come first. That's the problem. But the only way to uh, diminish those quadrant one uh, activities is to spend more time in quadrant two. And um, uh, quadrant three, I think, is the is the 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 one that um, that's the most that people are the most susceptible to getting drawn into. Uh, quadrant four baffles me. Why anyone would would knowingly waste time, I cannot understand. But people do. Right, definitely, Bruce. I like your labeling of the quadrants. I like that. Joan, you. Uh, we we're just talking about priorities. We're talking about Covey and the quadrants. We're talking about you know too much to do, not enough time. How how do you advise people to deal with that? Everyone has too much to do and not enough time. That's like you know ho hum. Yes, everyone has that, but. The people who who are able to navigate that reality uh, often uh, they're the ones who have a huge advantage over those who who are not navigating that. Yeah, you know, Bruce, you talk about the quadrants and you talk about influence in your book. You talk about time prioritization, and I would say that in addition to the main things to keep the main thing the main thing that we said before. How do you handle it when urgent requests come your way? Well, I guess I consider myself lucky because I get a lot of people coming to me, reaching out. They want tailored programs, interventions, team building sessions, one-on-one or team coaching. And instead of saying no, if I'm really swamped and turning them down, I ask questions to dig into. Remember we were talking before about what people want and what they need may not be the same thing. And it's kind of our job to help them distill needs from wants. So I try to boil it down to, hey, what, where is this need coming from? How can I at least provide some resources and equip them in the meantime? Something they could self-start. Something that they can do, maybe a white paper. Maybe it's a website. Maybe it's a, a TED Talk, a YouTube, a book that I might be able to refer them to provide them with guidance, some outlines, and have them maybe carry on an interim session with their team, and then I can follow up with next steps. And that kind of formula has worked for me a lot because, again, you're equipping them up front saying, hey, I may not have the time to spend with you now or with your group. Here are some resources to start you off thinking about what you might want to start picking the ball up. So even if you cannot uh, directly be the solution, you can, in um, a manageable amount of time, you can give them an alternative solution. Exactly. And it's using influence and it's also knowing your network, knowing your network of influence. There may be someone else in the organization that could more immediately help. So again, yeah, not saying no, but just saying no for now. And here are some resources for you know, look, so often people, they so want to be wanted and needed. They want to be that go-to person. They want to be indispensable. 
they're afraid to, as you said earlier, to say, hey, you know, actually one of my competitors is what you really need, or uh, I don't have the time and energy here, but I care enough about helping you meet your need that I'm willing to give you an alternative resource that may diminish your dependence on me or may give you an alternative. Maybe later on you'll think, oh, well, I guess, you know, I can, I can have that alternative resource, but it's still the right thing to do. And it's a way to still try to serve, even if um, you are consumed with other priorities that have to take precedence. Bruce, you know, you just spelled out another thing about being indispensable. How do you set yourself up to be that individual in the organization? And it's just what you said. If you are honest with people, you provide them with resources to say, I'm not saying no, but here's what we can do for now. Being honest with them instead of, well, you know, I'm really busy and I'll do it, but I have to say it's going to be a really short session because I'm very swamped. That's not the way to be indispensable. The way to be indispensable is to have someone turn around and say, you know what? She was too busy but she armed us with these resources. Let's dig into them. And she's going to come in as soon as she's free and lead us in a session. Thank you. Because I think one of the worst things to do also is to take on a project when you're absolutely swamped and maybe you're not extremely positive and energetic with it. I would say that would make you not indispensable at all because people would say, oh, you know what? She did do it, but it was kind of a drag. I didn't feel her focus was 100% with us. She seemed to maybe tired. And if, look, if somebody's coming to you and says, hey, what's your best career advice? Or, or uh, uh, I like to say, like, you know, uh, somebody's listening to this and says, how do I get to be like Joan Kafoa? You know, uh, what, what's your advice on that? Yeah, I, I would say don't do some of the things that I did at first. And I would say that whatever gig you decide to take, whether it's a job, an internship, or something part-time, even if it's not the path you have in mind, if it wasn't your first choice, take it. It'll probably give you a good idea about, you know what, I discovered this is what I don't like. Or, wow, here are the aspects of this job I like. Here are the aspects I really don't like. But I would say, observe before you speak. <laughs> because as soon as I got my first job, I started speaking up right away and giving my opinion. I was very excited. And I was like, no, Joan, you should observe the culture, observe how people interact. What's the formal level? What's the culture of the company? Is it hierarchical? And, you know, take your cues and communicate accordingly in your emails, in your speech. And of course, try to build trust from the start. And again, to the point about being indispensable, take on things with a positive attitude, do them well. Ask questions when you take on an assignment to make sure you're really going to fulfill it as they expected it. So you build trust, you become a person that can be depended on, and you deliver on expectations. And at the same time, meet as many people as you can on this assignment, and you start building your network. Joan Capua, thank you for being a guest on The Indispensables. It was my pleasure, Bruce. I had so much fun speaking with you again. In our next episode, I'll talk with Tony Saker, CEO of Bentley's Network, a network of accounting and advisory firms located across Australia, New Zealand, and China. If you like this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto underscore podcast 
That's at GoTo underscore podcast. Learn more about GoToism in my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, available now from Harvard Business Review Press, wherever books are sold. And you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com. Until next time, stay strong and stay indispensable.